Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars. a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Baker Street Regulars. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Chris Walsh. I use uh, he, him pronouns. I am a Chicago theater artist. I've been working here in Chicago since the early 2000s, and I act and I am a playwright. Before we dive into your Holmes works, can you talk a little bit about your history with the Sherlock Holmes stories? Sure. I suppose my first introduction with Sherlock Holmes as a character came when I was a very small child. Sesame Street had a character called Sherlock Hemlock. He was a Muppet who tried to solve crimes, but actually his dog Watson was the one who actually solved the crimes. And I was introduced to that before I knew who Sherlock Holmes actually was. And then I think my like kind of official introduction would have been with the Jeremy Brett BBC series that aired in the mid 80s, and early 90s. That's right. And, Is he your favorite actor who's portrayed Holmes? In a lot of ways, I, I think so. I mean, he's kind of the the stand in that I always think of when I think of Sherlock Holmes. So he's just kind of the, my my default. I think a lot of the actors who played it have all brought something unique and interesting to it. and. Jeremy Brett stands out in that he he got to do adaptations of almost every single one of the stories. Hmm. And it was kind of fascinating to watch his evolution in that character. Yeah. You re- you've read all the stories as well? I have, yeah. Ooh, what's your favorite of the stories? My favorite of the stories is, oh, what's it called? The, the Cursed Foot? Is it's the Devil's um, Foot? The Devil's Foot. It's a, it's a locked room mystery that's super macabre and weird and there's you know poison involved and madness and it's it's a lot of fun it's it's a particularly gothic outing for Sherlock Holmes that I really get a kick out of people love or hate that story we actually covered the Jeremy Brett version of that story mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. as creating it for the show and uh, I think we both liked it yeah I, I really enjoyed that story a lot I, I see why people really love it and I also see why people <laughs> probably hate it too <laughs> yeah right. I can see why how about favorite Watson is it one of the two Renata Watsons or is it someone else? That I don't know. There have been a few. I mean, I, I I have a tendency to blank on people's names. Martin, what's his name? In Sherlock. Oh, uh, Martin. The more recent BBC one. Oh, I've also lost it because I almost said Martin Short, <laughs> which is not his name. No. Freeman. Freeman. Martin, Martin Freeman. Thank you. I uh, wanted to I, say Martin Lawrence, so you're good. <laughs> I, I would have been curious to see that, to be honest. That would have been fascinating. <laughs> I know. I've always liked Martin Freeman's portrayal of him i i think a lot of actually the ideas for that character found their way into my plays from the way he portrayed it i really liked especially in the early episodes his use of the ptsd angle from his history as a soldier always fascinated me yeah i it definitely feels like and we haven't gotten to that adaptation yet but it definitely feels like a more three-dimensional watson than some of the earlier ones we've seen just say nigel bruce <laughs> just say nigel bruce yeah i watson is a fascinating character to me because on the page he's not really meant to be seen he's meant to be seen through and so any adaptation is really going to hinge on 
the adapter's idea of who Watson is if you're actually looking at him from the outside. Because you don't do that. Watson is meant to be a stand-in for the audience. You're meant to see Sherlock through Watson's eyes. And, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote him to be very much an idealistic version of the British everyman of the late 1800s. And so like every adaptation makes some kind of statement on that adaptation's own idea of what that is. You know, Watson kind of in a lot of ways is a representation of what society is going through at that time. Can you give an example of how the Watsons reflect what society is going through? I'm interested in that idea. I mean, it starts with the way he's written in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories. In the first story, you get a brief introduction to who he is. And he's given this sort of noble background, not literally noble, but the kind of background as an educated man, but also as a soldier, as a loyal friend, someone who has struggled, but isn't beaten by his struggles. And he's very much set up to be the kind of an an individual that a reader might aspire to or admire or be comfortable sharing this journey with. You know, Nigel Bruce, his version, I think I I understand your reaction to him because (laughs) I don't think they really knew what to do with Watson at that point. So they created this bumbling sidekick instead, which, you know, serves its own purpose. Watson does occasionally fumble, but as an adaptation of the character from Arthur Conan Doyle, I don't think that version really fits the bill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both of the Renata versions at Hardwick and David Burke, in a lot of ways, I think a lot of what they do owes a lot to Nigel Bruce, but at the same time, I think they work hard to make him a bit more of an everyman, which which served the show really well and well enough that they're what didn't they didn't really miss a beat when they switched Watsons because he's a stand-in. In in that version of the story, they they used him in that way that you're along for the ride with him. You're not really there to observe Watson the character. You're there to observe other characters along with Watson. So you wrote two theater adaptations of the Sherlock Holmes character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miss Holmes and Miss Holmes Returns. Were you aware of other stage adaptations before you started? Yes. I'd seen a couple throughout the years, and they all have their own charms. Sherlock Holmes is probably the most adapted character in the English language, probably outside of you know Shakespeare. There's just hundreds of different versions of him. The, the internet is stocked with fan fiction. I think the last one I saw was sort of a comedic version of it that David Arquette was in that ran here in Chicago for a bit. It was fine. I mean, it's there's so much to explore that I never really want to say that any one adaptation is just like, oh, they did that very badly. It wasn't necessarily for me. You know, they didn't explore what I enjoy about Sherlock, but it was a well done play. And then Kate Hamill is a playwright, and she's she's a kind of one of my heroes. She she writes amazing adaptations, and they all have this very specific 
feminist point of view and she has her own Sherlock Holmes adaptation that's uh, it's also set in modern day it's a very wild take on it but it's a lot of fun I was going to ask because the Kate Hamill one is also a gender bend right it is yeah you know when the idea first came up for my version of it I thought I was so clever and the I immediately started looking into it and found out that I was the millionth person to think of this idea there are records of stage productions of Sherlock Holmes stories starring women as Sherlock while Arthur Conan Doyle was still alive. Mm. So this is nothing new. I still think we managed to have put our own spin on it. And it's a fun idea. Like it's, yeah. it's really fun. I, I will say though, that there is a difference between uh, a female actor playing male Sherlock and your version that very distinctly has a female Sherlock with the attendant social consequences of being female in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. And likewise with the female Watson. You started hinting at this, but where did the idea start? What's the impetus for the project? There were a lot of things that kind of led into it. It starts off with the fact that my wife is an actor. And before this, she'd never acted in something I'd written. And we had for a long time wanted to find a project in which we could work together in that capacity. We've acted together before but she'd never been in a play that i'd written and we thought that would have been a lot of fun and then we'd been watching the bbc sherlock with benedict cumberbatch and martin freeman and enjoying it generally and then the cbs series elementary premiered and we decided to give that a try because we were kind of curious to compare the two and the two big differences between those shows that stand out right from the beginning are the fact that they changed the location to new york instead of london and a woman plays Watson. They have Joan Watson instead of John. And after we'd watched the pilot episode of that show, we kind of were just sitting on our couch talking about what the differences were and comparing and contrasting. And did this work? Did that work? Did we like one better? And then we, you know, we started to focus in on the character of Watson and how did it change the story to have a woman playing Watson? And our conclusion was that it, it changed it a little bit but not a whole lot because of the modern day setting. Mm -hmm. So our opinion at the time was that it was interesting, but wouldn't it be more interesting to see the kind of challenges that character would face in the times that the original stories were written. Mm -hmm. And the moment that kind of a suggestion came out, we're just like, Oh, we should do that. That should be a play. And my initial instinct was, oh, and you could be Watson and our friend Katie should be Sherlock. <laughs> Referring to our, to Katie McLean Hainsworth, who is an actor that I've worked with many, many times, and she's a genius and one of my favorite collaborators. And I immediately texted Katie just saying, hear me out. I don't know what the story is. We have no plot, no script, but Sherlock Holmes set in the late 1800s. You play Sherlock, Mandy plays Watson. And Katie's response immediately was like, oh, hell yes, let's do that. <laughs> and then the question became, oh, okay, what is the story? And my initial impulse was to try to do a straight adaptation of the first Sherlock Holmes novel. And once again, I'm blanking on it. It's Studying in Scarlet. Studying Scarlet, obviously. It's the, the one with half of the story taking place in Utah and none of the main characters showing up. The Mormons. Um, yeah, because... Apparently, Victorian England had a weird fascination with the American West and Mormons in particular. 
<laughs> and to be fair, so, the Americans still have a fascination with the American West. So, and frankly, oh, absolutely, the, the UK still does. They love Book of Mormon over there. <laughs> I mean, that's just a delightful show, though. So, I get that. So, anyway, I, the first draft of the play was actually an adaptation of A Study in Scarlet, and it it was okay. And I presented it to the ensemble at Lifeline Theater, which is a, a Chicago company that I'm, I'm a part of. You know, there were a couple scenes from that script that did eventually, in a transformed version, make it into what we eventually did. The idea that Sherlock starts off having been institutionalized was one idea. It's actually a, a, a meme that I found, but it's actually true, of all of the reasons women might be sent to asylums. And they were reasons like reading too much. <laughs> so it was a weirdly common thing. So that that was something that had really stuck with me on top of the idea that I was always enamored of. I'd read an essay like 20 years ago that I, that stuck with me that's about the idea that Sherlock, the way he's presented by Arthur Conan Doyle is neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. And that idea has just always fascinated me. And one of the things I do like about the BBC Sherlock is that it kind of digs into that a bit, never really uses the word, but still addresses the idea that he is, has psychological and physical reasons why he finds it hard to interact with society the way other people do. And that, that's always stuck with me. And I wanted to explore that a bit and hints of that crept into the study in Scarlet adaptation but after the ensemble read it, they all kind of said, I mean, it's it's fine, but it doesn't do what you said you wanted to do, which was really dig into the challenges these women actually face. And the crime that they're solving should lean into that. Like that should that should be what brings these two these women together is not just you know a random interest in crime solving like as if they're doing a podcast. But something that that is actually meaningful to the struggle that that they face. So why don't you synopsize the first play for us, and we'll talk about that one, and then we'll dive into the second one afterwards. Sure. So in the first play, Thomas Chapman is a London police detective who has a history of wives dying on him. And his third wife, Lizzie, starts receiving anonymous letters warning her that her husband is a danger to her and she looks for help. And the person she turns to is someone that she's heard rumors about this individual who can help women when they have problems that regular authorities are not equipped to deal with. And that person is this brilliant, but poorly understood woman named Sherlock Holmes who at the same time, when we meet her, is dealing with the fact that she has just come out of being in an institution again. Her life is very much at the whim of her older brother, Mycroft, who, because he's the eldest male in the family, gets complete authority over anything she does. So she has to deal with that. And we also meet a young doctor by the name of Dorothy Watson, who is trying to pursue a career at a time where in England, women had just within the previous decade been given the right to have a license to practice medicine. And digging into that research was really fascinating because I uncovered this whole history of 
events at the University of Edinburgh, which was the first school in the UK to admit women into the medical program. And just the difficulties that those women faced just getting to, you know, sit for exams and that sort of thing. So that is in a nutshell, the, the disparate story elements that came together to form the first play. There's a lot there. I want to talk about the institutionalization thing first. This mm -hmm. probably wasn't what was on your mind when you were writing it, but Britney Spears' autobiography just came out, which has this this odd echo that this thing is still happening, which is that inconvenient women still face the potential of being institutionalized by male relations and family members. You already sort of talked about why that element was speaking to you, but can you talk more about what you think it does for the character? The idea of being misunderstood fascinates me, in part because I've had the luxury of being a cisgendered straight white male, so no one ever misunderstands me. <laughs> and you have to have that pointed out to you if you're in my position, and you have to stop and realize that not everyone gets that the benefit of the doubt the way you do. And it's a sobering realization. I mean, privilege is the the term that gets used. I think a lot of people misunderstand it, but it describes it perfectly. And around the time that I was writing it, a lot of events were happening that really made me aware of it. I was still looking for story ideas when there was a kind of a town hall meeting for the Chicago theater community. So I attended this event that out of it came something known as Not In Our House, which I became involved in because it, I just heard a lot of things in that room that night that really just rang a lot of bells for me. One of the things, there was a specific thing, a woman just stood up in the audience, uh, had raised her hands, and she said something that ended up becoming a line in the first play, where she just said, theater is supposed to be where we feel the most safe. But honestly, when was the last time, and she addressed the women in the room, and she said, when was the last time any of you felt safe? And that just really punched me in the gut when I heard that. So I felt compelled to be involved and to see what I could do, but also felt that if I was going to be writing a play about this, that I needed to really take some responsibility and take it seriously. Because the initial concept was, gee, wouldn't this be fun? The conversations that were happening in our community made me realize that, yes, it can be fun. But if we're going to address this issue, we have to actually address the issue. And, and realistically, I may not be the right person to do that. But if I'm going to do that, then I had to do all of my homework. So that's where a lot of that came from. The idea that Sherlock's behavior for being intellectual, for being outspoken, for being curious, but also trying to follow the patterns that Arthur Conan Doyle set up. If she is neurodivergent and therefore doesn't read social cues the way other people do, you know, 100, 130, 140 years ago, society's response to that was very, very different and much harsher than it is now. And she has an older brother, Mycroft, who is a character, again, from canon. You know, out of the 60 stories that were written, he shows up in, I think, four of them. 
And he's kind of an interesting character. He's a bit funny. He's written as this guy who just sits and thinks. And somehow his sitting and thinking gives him a massive amount of influence over the British government. Although what that influence is, is never spelled out. Like what his role is, is never fully explained. But thinking is like, okay, if a character like that, rather than having, you know, a younger brother who is just as smart as he is, just more active, that'd be fine. But if it's a younger sister for whom, you know, he is responsible legally and whose behavior, if it gets the wrong kind of attention, can severely affect his reputation and his ability to exert his own influence in the spheres that he runs in, makes Mycroft become a different person. Mm -hmm. And so he's taken on a much more sinister bent throughout both of the stories as a result. Very much so. (laughs) Yes. Shadow villain of, of both plays in some sense. And to pull back the curtain on the podcast for a second, like I come into this with some Sherlock Holmes knowledge and Ian less so. So we actually haven't, over the course of the season so far, haven't read any stories or engaged with any media that depicts Mycroft yet. This is our first Mycroft. What a way to start. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always knew he existed and I always knew like what his character was, but to actually see him in a story was definitely interesting and i i liked it a lot yeah but by the end i was like mycroft yeah <laughs> well i i think that's good i don't want people to like mycroft as frustrating as it is that i i have to acknowledge that if there are characters that i could most be identified with it'd probably be mycroft and lestrade because they are in a lot of ways just sort of stand-ins for the the straight white men who run the place and i should point out like I had mentioned, you know, writing the first play, the Not in Our House movement definitely informed a lot of what went in there, but there was still very much an idea of this should be fun. Mm-hmm. And it's also an exploration of look how far we've come in a lot of ways. But that play opened in September of 2016 mm. and was still running after election night 2016. Ooh. And it was fascinating hearing the cast getting out of their the first performance after the election and discovering that they were suddenly doing a very different play and that the audience ha- was coming in with a very different idea of what the, what they wanted to get out of this play and i think in a lot of ways we were lucky that we had done our homework enough that what these audiences suddenly wanted were still finding it in this play but you know what was funny the week before was not funny anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it became, instead of a play that was, you know, celebrating how far we've come, it became much more of a play about how far we have to go and how little we've actually changed. And I think that, you know, Miss Holmes Returns as a result is a very different play than it probably would have been. I'm sure I have some early notes somewhere of thoughts I had, you know, when we were still working on the first play, you know, the cast was just like, we're going to do more of these. Right. And so I, I had some notes about things I was going to address, but I, I didn't look at them. I had to start over. Things that I really like about both plays is how invested they are in feminist critiques of the Victorian age. And, and obviously the way that that holds a mirror to our time, 
it's interesting because I don't think of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes as having a really coherent political identity. No. And your Miss <laughs> Holmes sort of develops one over the course of these two plays. How different do you think your Miss Holmes is from Sherlock Holmes in Arthur Conan Doyle's canon? At this point, vastly different, I would say. I think that where we start at the beginning of the first play, there are a significant amount of similarities. In fact, you know, a, a lot of effort was put into giving them as close to the same starting points as we could, because that was the whole experiment, was what then has to change to allow two women to run around London, you know, bursting into crime scenes and and solving mysteries. In the original stories, you know, Sherlock and Watson do that all the time, disrupt <laughs> crime scenes, you know, wander right into police investigations, and, you know, a few witty bon mots, and then they're allowed to do whatever it is they want to do. When we meet Lestrade in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories, they already have an established relationship. I don't feel like that would have been the case if Sherlock were a woman. She would not have had the same kind of access. She wouldn't have had the same opportunities. She wouldn't have been trying to solve the same kinds of cases. So that wouldn't have put her you know, in that realm. She still has a fascination with it. You know, She reads the papers. She knows who he is. But their meeting is very different. And Lestrade's understanding of their relationship is very different. Because when we meet Lestrade in the original stories, he's already been working with Sherlock Holmes and has already been reaping the benefits of having Sherlock Holmes help him solve his cases. And so he's got a bit of an ego. He's got some authority within Scotland Yard. He has some rivalries with some of the other inspectors, that kind of thing. But if he'd never met Sherlock Holmes, then he wouldn't, you know, he's not that good of a detective. He's okay. I think, you know, what helps him is the fact that he is, if nothing else, a very honest man. And so that remained at the core of him. But since when we meet him in the play, he hadn't had Sherlock Holmes to help his career along. He never developed that kind of ego, nor did he develop those levels of rivalries. But I feel like if he's still that honest of a person, he has the same kind of honesty that he has in the stories, then he would have found himself in a position where, you know, perhaps he was having to investigate crimes possibly committed by other police officers, that sort of thing. And because he wasn't the well-known Lestrade, it wouldn't have gone as well for him, but he would have done his duty. Uh, so that's that's how he evolved. I, I will say I really enjoyed the Lestrade arc, especially through the first play, you know, just seeing him being like, you know, what are you doing in this? And then by the end being like, okay, fine. I, I like you. I like what you do. Yeah. And there's a time <laughs> difference between two plays and I like that they've been working together in the interim. Yes. I think that that speaks highly of, of him. Mm -hmm. um, this first play is also a beginning of the Holmes-Watson relationship. Yes. That's, I think, probably the one thing you kept from studying Scarlet, is that it, this is them meeting. And you have your version of Stanford as well. I do, um, yes. <laughs> so I appreciate it as a nod to that. <laughs> we haven't talked a ton about Watson. I really like your version of Watson. I do, too. But I also like that you, I think, have made a, a different argument than Doyle is making about what the function of Watson in the relationship is. I've paraphrased something here. I think Holmes asked Watson to remind me my actions have consequences, mm -hmm. which I think is really mm. interesting. And I don't think that's part of the bargain in the books. 
what brought you to that idea? Part of it, I'll admit, was probably cribbed from the Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman version. Mm-hmm. It's never expressly spelled out that way, but you see moments during that series where Cumberbatch's version of Sherlock, he, he's can be astoundingly abrasive and will say things that are highly inappropriate and doesn't realize it. And Martin Freeman's version of Watson is kind of there just to go, not, not good. And part of the charm of their relationship is that you see that something about Watson makes him the, the only person who can tell Sherlock to do that. Hmm. And I, I just really enjoyed that aspect of their character. And knowing that I was going to explore with Sherlock, the idea that, that her behavior has, you know, astoundingly severe consequences that can involve actual institutionalization the idea that she would need someone in her life who could help guide her and reel her in, but in a way that, you know, her brother can't do because she's always going to chafe at the restraints that her brother puts on her. (laughs) But the idea of her actually developing a friendship and setting out to do so purposefully because she understands at least on a intellectual level, she understands her need for that just really excited me and i love the idea i don't know i think platonic friendship is fun to watch as a storytelling uh, motif and so watching their friendship develop and digging into that really just excited me and it was enormously fun to write and then you have to craft a watson that actually does fit that bill they can't just be someone who's along for the ride and on top of that you know research led to in trying to figure out who sherlock or watson was there were aspects of doyle's watson that i knew i needed to keep i wanted watson to still be a doctor because as far as the the nuts and bolts of them solving crimes that is watson's contribution watson has you know anatomical knowledge and medical knowledge that sherlock holmes does not have Watson, as written in the original stories, is also much more action-oriented and carries a gun. You know, I thought, that's really cool. And I, I think that would be interesting to have a reason for this version of Watson to also have to carry a gun. It took a long time to figure out what that reason would be, though. But I was pretty happy once I settled on it. And then, you know, digging into the history of women in medicine in Victorian England... Finding out that right around that time period, just before, like literally just before when R. Watson would have been earning her degree, it was an astoundingly tumultuous and eventful time for women in the medical field because, except for nurses, that wasn't a thing. Nurses and midwives, but there were no doctors in the UK who were women. And so I uncovered, you know, historical figures like Sophia Jex Blake and Margaret Todd. Sophia Jex Blake was the first woman to be admitted as a medical student at the University of Edinburgh. And she was part of a group that was called the Edinburgh Seven, which were the first seven female students. And while they were there in their second year, which at that point, their number had increased to about 20, there was an actual historical event called the Surgeon's Hall Riot, where these women... They were just showing up because they had to take a test. And a mob of about 300 people showed up 
and started throwing feces at them because they didn't like the idea of women studying medicine. And they prevented them from going through the gate into the building until finally a custodian came out and managed to sneak them through a side entrance. And they had to sit and take this exam covered in everything that had just been thrown at them. And the crowd was still right outside the gate yelling the whole time. And this event got covered in the papers like very minorly, but it, it became known as the Surgeon's Hall riot because Surgeon's Hall was the name of the building they were going to. Mm. And just the idea that like this was an actual thing that happened, you know, you can't not bring that up if you're writing a story about a woman who'd earned her medical degree while this was going on. Well, so, more than bring it up, your your Watson was part of it, was was one of the doctors who was, was denied entrance. Yeah. The other element that I love that you have added is that like in... Doyle's works, Watson is a writer, but right. in this version, she has under a pen name written a novel, and then later has written about her exploits with Sherlock, mm-hmm. also yeah, under that... the same pen name, and still writing about herself. I always found it funny that Watson, even the original stories, not only writing about Sherlock but also writing about himself with Sherlock. So I I really enjoyed <laughs> that, e- even in this Watson, she's like, I gotta write about myself. I gotta write about this experience. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, a novel about a female doctor. And actually, that has a historical basis as well. One of the women I mentioned, Margaret Todd, she was one of Sophia Jax Blake's protégés. After Sophia Jax Blake had gotten her degree, she co-founded the London School of Medicine for Women and some other schools. And Margaret Todd was one of her students. And Margaret Todd paid for her education by writing novels about women studying medicine. And so I just thought, oh, that's just perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. So those two women very much influenced who our Watson became. You also make a connection between what Watson does for work and what Sherlock does for work. The line is observe, diagnose, treat the problem, Mm. which I like as well as like a parallel between Mm -hmm. who they both are. But you mentioned the relationship between Holmes and Watson as being platonic. There are a lot of people who have read queer subtext into the books for years. Oh, uh, sure. Did that ever affect your reading of the characters either in the books or while you were writing the play? In a way, it's the kind of thing that's, it's not that I don't think it's, how do I put this? It's definitely there if you want it to be there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that, there's nothing that says that, that it can't be. There's no plot point or statement that either of those characters makes in any of those stories that disavows the possibility that it could be read uh, from a queer lens. Absolutely could. And if that makes those stories better for you, go for it. Why not? And frankly, if that makes you the, watching the plays, my, my plays better for you, awesome. I'm all for it. But I wanted to treat their relationship essentially the same way that it was in the original stories that it's not that it can't be there, but it's not that it is there. It's there. If you want it to be there. Um, It's frankly something that I don't think I would be qualified to write like a queer love story. I don't think I would have the language to do it. I certainly would not have the, I think like, like the cultural touchstones or life experience that would really inform it properly. But also I just, I've, I like the idea that it's like the kind of thing that like, I would just, I would never deny its existence because for a lot of people that does make the story speak to them in a new way. I'll describe a, a moment that 
I felt had the potential for queer subtext <laughs> just because, just because it's, it's how I read things. What? In the first play at the very beginning, your version of Stanford proposes to Dorothy Watson. And then she sort of like, isn't totally sure how to, how to take that or she doesn't say, quite say yes or no. And in the next scene or the, the scene or two after that, Sherlock, actually, I think it's when she invites Dorothy to move in. She seems to describe it as an alternative to getting married to Stanford. <laughs> that it's like you could get married to a man or <laughs> live with a woman as a as a bachelor or whatever the female version of that is, bachelorette. <laughs> but then in the second one, there's this hint of this playfulness of Watson having to point out to Sherlock that men are flirting with her. Right. <laughs> um, and not seeming like upset about that. Like the jealous person is Lestrade, not not Watson right. in that situation, right. mm-hmm. which is also interesting, which could be read mm-hmm. different ways. It's interesting to preserve the ambiguity of the original stories in a different context. I would definitely say one of my moments that I read came towards the end of the second play. And I think this is possibly a good moment to uh, summarize the second play, if you would. Sure. <laughs> Miss Holmes Returns takes place four years after the end of Miss Holmes. During that time, Sherlock and Watson have been living and working together alongside Lestrade to solve crimes, solve mysteries, their focus being to help the women who come to them with problems that can't be addressed through normal means. But also there is sort of an overriding goal of theirs that has been imposed upon them by Mycroft, who agrees to continue allowing them to go on their adventures as long as part of their goal is to uncover the identity of a uh, mysterious crime figure who's known only as the professor. Into this, we also learn about a nurse and activist of Indian descent who finds herself on the run after being accused of a murder and needing Sherlock and Watson's help. And part of the impetus for this was continuing with the idea of exploring feminist themes and finding ways for these characters to continue fighting against the patriarchy. It was necessary to just expand thematically and find ways to be sort of intersectional with the exploration. So bringing in an exploration of race into this particular story felt like kind of a next step in that investigation. I'll admit, I don't know how successful we were but I'm still proud of it. I, I really like the character of, of Priya Singh, who is the nurse who who has to go on the run. And we see a lot of the play just from her point of view in that in the play. She kind of follows her own narrative for a large chunk of it before her story and Sherlock's stories finally intersect. I knew going in that Moriarty was going to play a significant role in the story, one way or the other. In the the Doyle canon. Sherlock has kind of two great foils that readers and audiences have clung to. One is Irene Adler mm-hmm. and the other one is Moriarty. It's fascinating to me because both of those characters out of the 60 stories that, that Doyle wrote, each of them only appear once. <laughs> Moriarty was created specifically because Doyle was tired of writing the stories and wanted a break and wanted to kill Sherlock off. So he created a villain who was smart enough to do it and that is 
Moriarty's only purpose. He is never mentioned prior to his one appearance. And he's mentioned like maybe twice after that. Cause the, the follow-up story once Arthur Conan Doyle finally said, all right, fine, I'll keep going does address the immediate fallout of Sherlock and Moriarty's encounter. And it's one of the rare occasions where one story is a continuation of previous events. Hmm. And the same with Irene Adler. She appears in one story. But both of those those characters, because of the effect they had on Sherlock in those stories, they were so pronounced and so unique compared to any of the other foils that Sherlock goes up against. Those two have always stood out for audiences as kind of the big ones. And so I knew Moriarty definitely was going to have to make an appearance and he was going to have to have an effect on the story, either as a background character or the way he eventually appears in the story. It seemed to me that a character like Moriarty would be fascinated by a woman like Sherlock Holmes. He would see the male Sherlock Holmes as a threat. That's just obvious. And that's what happens in that story. But I think he would treat a woman very differently. And I think he would find a different way to approach that challenge. And so it was a lot of fun figuring out what that approach would be. I was just going to say, like, it seems almost, and not to get too spoilery, but it seems almost from the way that I read it, very flirtatious in a way, you know, kind of like, oh, a woman who is kind of like equal to me in in intellect. I kind of like that. Absolutely. I think that that ends up being, you know, his fatal flaw is that he sees a rare person who he sees as possibly an intellectual equal. But because she's a woman, he can only imagine it in some form of a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. He can't really see her or, you know, as a potential partner or as a potential rival necessarily, he only sees her, you know, through that lens of what one gender means to another in that society. This will seem like an odd comparison, but in Disney movies, almost mm-hmm. always the hero and villain are the same gender. Did you ever consider having a female Moriarty? I did consider it. It was literally the first question that was asked. I got I and I got asked that a lot from audience members coming out of the first one was is Moriarty going to be a woman? Hmm. <laughs> and I, I I did think about that for a while because that would have been cool. That would have been a fun character to explore. I ended up not going that way for a couple of reasons. First of all, was that in the idea of, you know, gender being a, a very important part of the, what we're exploring in these stories, Sherlock already has a woman counterpart in Irene Adler. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to explore that, why wouldn't I use Irene instead of Moriarty? Second is that the the main thrust, the whole point of the stories is the struggle against patriarchy. And I think that having Moriarty be a woman, while interesting, wouldn't give me as much of an opportunity to have that be the overriding theme. I'd like that you give Moriarty his canonical Doylean death in a way or <laughs> without involving Sherlock. I think it's fun that a different woman that he wrongs gets to Reichenbach him. Yeah. 
it it is fun to bring in hints of those moments that echo back to what happened to the original stories. I also have there's a exchange right before he goes over the edge. Yes, I got that. That mm-hmm. echoes one of my favorite lines of dialogue between the two of them. I'm trying to remember who says what in which. It's, uh, it's um, I think it's everything I have to say has already crossed your mind. Then my response has no doubt crossed yours. Something along exactly. those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I honestly don't remember who I had to say what, but but I flipped it because the opposite characters say it in the original story. Mm. But but yeah, like dropping in Easter eggs like that is a huge amount of fun. And as much as I am enjoying exploring the progression of these characters and their relationship and the effect they have on each other, which is making both of them very different characters by the end of Miss Holmes Returns that they were at the beginning of Miss Holmes. I still want to do my best to keep the flavor of it being a Sherlock Holmes story mm-hmm. as much as possible. Because that's what's supposed to invite the audience in is the idea that you know, you're going to get a Sherlock Holmes story, mm-hmm. but we're just going to give you a twist that, that tells you a little something that you wouldn't expect. I was going to say, speaking of that and giving the audience those little hints and story elements, I really appreciated your version of the Baker Street Irregulars with the knitting circle. (laughs) I really love them. Right. Mrs. Wiggins. Mrs. Wiggins. Shout out to Mrs. (laughs) Wiggins. We love her. I do love Mrs. Wiggins. Yeah, that was, yeah, I, yeah, one of my proudest moments was thinking of the knitting circle. I I really, Mm. really dug that. (laughs) And, and yeah, I I love Mrs. Wiggins. Had a lot of fun writing her. Well, and it feels like it speaks to the meta narrative of female oppression in the Victorian era that, like, the way that homeless youth are sort of invisible to Victorians, mm-hmm. married women are the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and again, it's just really fascinating making them, instead of just like these little kids, having them be called the knitting circle so that there's no like questioning them or there's really nobody like really paying any attention to them too it's just like oh it's just a knitting circle exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) the last thing i want to talk about in relation to miss Holmes returns is this thread that's running through it of progressive politics yes that the the clients are these two women who are uh, amongst other things campaigning to end this unjust law the Contagious Diseases Act. Is this a real law? It's a collection of laws, actually, that were passed over a series of years. And where its effects took place was originally only supposed to be in port towns. And its purpose, in theory, was to protect the military from catching a venereal disease from prostitutes. The problem is that it tried to enforce that by policing the prostitutes, but not policing the soldiers' behavior. And the law gradually got expanded upon until it it worked everywhere and not just in those specific communities. And the effect was that essentially anyone could accuse a woman of spreading disease and she could be arrested and forced to submit to a medical examination. And if she was thought to be carrying a disease she could be held against her will in a hospital, what was called a lock hospital, for up to a year. And this is a real law. And one of the characters who appears in the play, Josephine Butler, was an actual existing person who did campaign against this law, among many other things that she did. 
And eventually, a couple of years after this play takes place, she was successful in getting it repealed. Yay! I, I mean, that's interesting because I'm not such a student of British history, but that feels sort of analogous to our witch trials, that it just it seems like a potentially a way to silence women or to remove them without having to prove anything. Absolutely. It's, I, there are a lot of analogies, I think, that work for it. The one that was foremost, I think, in, in my mind and in our production team's mind as we were working on the play was, was Roe v. Wade and its parallels to to laws that restrict what women can and cannot do with their own bodies. Well, without giving away the ending, where the play ends up is that the power struggle is about whether or not the government should be able to continue doing that and uh, whether or not the men involved want it to continue being a law and, and not about how the women feel about it, mm-hmm. which is, I think, telling in and of itself. Before we wrap up, what was the bit of queer subtext you found in the second play? Oh, it, it was at the end when they when they hold hands. Oh, I mean, oh sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My gay senses tingled, and I went, "Gay, yes." <laughs> at the end, they're lesbians now. Holding hands is gay. Holding hands is gay. You've heard it here first. And like I said, if yes, that is a hundred percent an accurate reading of that moment of the play. If that makes it better for you. I have nothing against that at all. That's fantastic. You do remove all of the male romantic suitors in the play. They're all gone by the end. That that is true. Yeah. So Um. we're just saying. (laughs) Are you done with the Miss Holmeses? Is there a Miss Holmes 3 in you, do you think? I do have plans for a Miss Holmes 3. How and when that happens, I don't know. I will admit that I like career-wise and... Energy-wise, I'm in a very different place now, post-pandemic, that I was when I was working on the first ones. And theater in general is in a very different place. Very much so. Mm-hmm. It's hard to gauge what audiences want right now. It's easy to judge audiences for that, but I, do, I don't think you should. It's just you know coming off of a particularly weird time and not really being done with that particularly weird time. Not just the pandemic, which we'd like to think is done, but it's not entirely. And, you know, the amount of, you know, awful cultural bullshit that had been lingering under the surface for a very long time that got churned up in the last few years mm-hmm. is just a very different place. And I, you know, for my own purposes, I have not figured out what I currently want out of theater. And I feel like that's true for, a lot of theater artists and a lot of theater goers, but that's, you know, it's, it's theater. It's constantly evolving. Eventually there'll be a place for it again. If, if not now, if, you know, I always worry that I don't want to get too preachy, I guess, because I, I feel like, you know, these plays have a lot to say and, but you know, if I don't want to force feed audiences that aren't interested in hearing it, so we'll see. But that said, yes, I have been I have been working on a third play. There is a very subtle hint near the end of Miss Holmes Returns that will give you a clue about who might show up. And I'm excited about where that'll go. I said with Miss Holmes Returns that there were, you know, bringing in new aspects of things that intersect with modern feminism 
there are so many other things to bring in, you know, that's deserved to be explored. And I think would be, first of all, fun to write about. That would be educational for me to write about. The challenge that I always have to think about is, again, me being a cisgendered straight white male, I have to constantly answer for myself the question of what makes you the right person to write this story? And the answer for me tends to be that, yes, the main characters are women and the challenges they face are specific to what women are facing. But what I'm writing about is the footprint that I and people like me have made on our society and how other people have been forced to deal with that. So if anyone's supposed to take something from these stories, it's actually people like me, people who who can be described similar to me. And I hope that stories like mine will give people who have had a lot of influence, a lot of sway, a lot of privilege because of the color of their skin, because of their gender or sex, a moment to stop and just consider the effect that they have had. And that's, you know, what I someday hope Mycroft will experience <laughs> is that he will have a moment where he will realize the what the decisions he makes affect more than just the other white men who run things. Hmm. Crossing my fingers at that. Interesting. <laughs> I want to read your Mycroft redemption play. <laughs> and now I'm going to, I'm going to like rescan the entire last scene. You sent Ian scrambling for it. I know. I'm like looking now and I'm like seeing a reference of American. I'm like, is it the Mormons? Like, are we bringing the Mormons? <laughs> do they, do they finally get a say? Do they finally get their own? Uh, I will say it's, I don't think it'd be a spoiler to, to reveal because there's a, there's a toss off line that Mycroft mentions that he received a communique from the King of Bohemia. Oh yes, of course. Duh. This is a, yes. So this is a, a setup to it, to introduce Irene Adler, who I'm excited about some ideas for her. I think, yeah, I think there'll be some some interesting twists on her character to int- that are worth introducing. So, very good. Yeah, without def- spoiling it. Yeah, definitely look, definitely looking forward to that when it does happen. Yeah, because j- just personally, I really enjoy your writing, and I really enjoy what you've done with these characters. And you know, I, I wish you nothing but success we'll we'll book our ticket to chicago in 2026 right now yeah miss holmes returns for the second time we'll wear the t-shirts we'll yep. have we'll have t-shirts we'll have signs <laughs> that would be amazing that w- i would be all for that <laughs> well we're so glad that you were able to come and share with us yes where can people find you if they want to find you um probably the best place i i do have a website christopher m walsh.com uh and through there you can uh find anything I might have coming up. Things are a bit quiet right now, but hopefully sometime soon there'll be more. Uh, and through there, you can always find me on social media. Perfect. Uh, and we'll link to the website in the description of the episode. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, thank you. So next week, we're starting a two-episode run talking about video game adaptations involving the Sherlock Holmes character, starting with the Ace Attorney version, Herlock Sholmes. Mm-hmm. And then going into the Frogwares game, the first chapter. Yes, very excited about this one. But until then, we've been your Baker Street regulars, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>